Book One, Chapter Three of the Dead Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. The Dead Secret by Wilkie Collins. Chapter Three: The Hiding of the Secret. The cool, sweet air in the garden, blowing freshly over Sarah's face, seemed to calm the violence of her agitation. She turned down a sidewalk, which led to a terrace, and overlooked the church of the neighboring village. The daylight out of doors was clear already. The misty auburn light that goes before sunrise was flowing up peacefully and lovely, behind a line of black-brown moorland over all the eastern sky. The old church, with the hedge of myrtle and fuchsia growing round the little cemetery in all the luxuriance which is only seen in Cornwall, was clearing and brightening to view, almost as fast as the morning firmament itself. Sarah leaned her arms heavily on the back of a garden seat, and turned her face toward the church. Her eyes wandered from the building itself to the cemetery by its side, rested there, and watched the light growing warmer and warmer over the lonesome refuge where the dead lay at rest. Oh, my heart, my heart, she said, what must it be made of not to break? She remained for some time leaning on the seat, looking sadly toward the churchyard, and pondering over the words which she had heard Captain Treverton say to the child. They seemed to connect themselves, as everything else now appeared to connect itself in her mind, with the letter that had been written on Mrs. Treverton's deathbed. She drew it from her bosom once more, and crushed it up angrily in her fingers. "'Still in my hands, still not seen by any eyes but mine,' she said, looking down at the crumpled pages. Is it all my fault? If she was alive now, if she had seen what I saw, if she had heard what I heard in the nursery, could she expect me to give him the letter? Her mind was apparently steadied by the reflection which her last words expressed. She moved away thoughtfully from the garden seat, crossed the terrace, descended some wooden steps, and followed a shrubbery path which led around by a winding track from east to the north side of the house. This part of the building had been uninhabited and neglected for more than half a century past. In the time of Captain Treverton's father, the whole range of the north rooms had been stripped of their finest pictures and their most valuable furniture, to assist in redecorating the west rooms, which now formed the only inhabited part of the house, and which were amply sufficient for the accommodation of the family and of any visitors who came to stay with them. The mansion had been originally built in the form of a square, and had been strongly fortified. Of the many defenses of the place, but one now remained, a heavy low tower, from which, and from the village near, the house derived its name of Portgena Tower, standing at the southern extremity of the west front. 
The south side itself consisted of stables and outhouses, with a ruinous wall in front of them, which, running back eastward at right angles, joined the north side, and so completed the square which the whole outline of the building represented. The outside view of the range of north rooms, from the weedy, deserted garden below, showed plainly enough that many years had passed since any human creature had inhabited them. The window-panes were broken in some places, and covered thickly with dirt and dust in others. Here the shutters were closed, there they were only half opened. The untrained ivy, the rank vegetation growing in fissures of the stonework, the festoons of spiders' webs, the rubbish of wood, bricks, plaster, broken glass, rags, and strips of soiled cloth which lay beneath the windows, all told the same tale of neglect. Shadowed by its position, this ruinous side of the house had a dark, cold, wintry aspect, even on the sunny August morning when Sarah Leeson strayed into the deserted northern garden. Lost in the labyrinth of her own thoughts, she moved slowly past flower-beds, long since uprooted, and along gravel walks overgrown by weeds. Her eyes wandered mechanically over the prospect, her feet mechanically carrying her on wherever there was a trace of footpath, lead where it might. The shock which the words spoken by her master in the nursery had communicated to her mind had set her whole nature, so to speak, at bay, and had roused in her, at last, the moral courage to arm herself with a final and desperate resolution. Wandering more and more slowly along the pathways of the forsaken garden, as the course of her ideas withdrew her more and more completely from all outward things, she stopped insensibly on an open patch of ground which had once been a well-kept lawn, and which still commanded a full view of the long range of uninhabited north rooms. "'What binds me to give the letter to my master at all?' she thought to herself, smoothing out the crumpled paper dreamily in the palm of her hand. "'My mistress died without making me swear to do that. Can she visit it on me from the other world, if I keep the promises I swore to observe, and do no more? May I not risk the worst that can happen, so long as I hold religiously to all that I undertook to do on my oath? She paused here in reasoning with herself, her superstitious fears still influencing her out of doors in the daylight, as they had influenced her in her own room in the time of darkness. She paused then fell to smoothing the letter again, and began to recall the terms of the solemn engagement which Mrs. Treverton had forced her to contract. What had she actually bound herself to do? Not to destroy the letter, and not to take it away with her if she left the house. Beyond that, Mrs. Treverton's desire had been that the letter should be given to her husband. Was that last wish binding on the person to whom it had been confided? Yes. As binding as an oath? No. As she arrived at that conclusion, she looked up. 
At first her eyes rested vacantly on the lonely deserted north front of the house. Gradually they became attracted by one particular window exactly in the middle, on the floor above the ground, the largest and the gloomiest of all the row. Suddenly they brightened with an expression of intelligence. She started. A faint flush of color flew into her cheeks, and she hastily advanced closer to the wall of the house. The panes of the large window were yellow with dust and dirt, and festooned about fantastically with cobwebs. Below it was a heap of rubbish, scattered over the dry mold of what would have once been a bed of flowers or shrubs. The form of the bed was still marked out by an oblong boundary of weeds and rank grass. She followed it irresolutely all around, looking up at the window at every step, then stopped close under it, glanced at the letter in her hand, and said to herself abruptly, I'll risk it. As the words fell from her lips, she hastened back to the inhabited part of the house, followed the passage on the kitchen floor which led to the housekeeper's room, entered it, and took down from a nail in the wall a bunch of keys, having a large ivory label attached to the rung that connected them, on which was inscribed, Keys of the North Rooms. She placed the keys on a writing table near her, took up a pen, and rapidly added these lines on the blank side of the letter which she had written under her mistress's dictation. If this paper should ever be found, which I pray with my whole heart it never may be, I wish to say that I have come to the resolution of hiding it, because I dare not show the writing that it contains to my master, to whom it is addressed. In doing what I now propose to do, though I am acting against my mistress's last wishes, I am not breaking the solemn engagement which she obliged me to make before her on her deathbed. That engagement forbids me to destroy this letter, or to take it away with me if I leave the house. I shall do neither. My purpose is to conceal it in the place of all others where I think there is least chance of it ever being found again. Any hardship or misfortune which may follow as a consequence of this deceitful proceeding on my part will fall on myself. Others, I believe in my conscience, will be the happier for the hiding of the dreadful secret which this letter contains. She signed those lines with her name, pressed them hurriedly over the blotting-pad that lay with the rest of the writing materials on the table, took the note in her hand, after first folding it up, and then, snatching at the bunch of keys, with a look all around her as if she dreaded being secretly observed, left the room. All her actions since she had entered it had been hasty and sudden. She was evidently afraid of allowing herself one leisure moment to reflect. On quitting the housekeeper's room, she turned to the left, ascended a back staircase, and unlocked a door at the top of it. A cloud of dust flew all around her as she softly opened the door. A moldy coolness made her shiver as she crossed a large stone hall with some black old family portraits hanging on the walls, 
the canvases of which were bulging out of the frames. Ascending more stairs, she came upon a row of doors, all leading into rooms on the first floor of the north side of the house. She knelt down, putting the letter on the board beside her, opposite the keyhole of the fourth door she came to, after reaching the top of the stairs, peered in distrustfully for an instant, then began to try the different keys, till she found one that fitted the lock. She had great difficulty in accomplishing this, from the violence of her agitation, which made her hands tremble to such a degree that she was hardly able to keep the keys separate, one from the other. At length she succeeded in opening the door. Thicker clouds of dust than she had yet met with flew out the moment the interior of the room was visible. A dry, airless, suffocating atmosphere almost choked her as she stooped to pick up the letter from the floor. She recoiled from it at first, and took a few steps back toward the staircase. But she recovered her resolution immediately. I can't go back now, she said desperately, and entered the room. She did not remain in it more than two or three minutes. When she came out again, her face was white with fear, and the hand which had held the letter when she went into the room held nothing now but a small rusty key. After locking the door again, she examined the large bunch of keys which she had taken from the housekeeper's room with closer attention than she had yet bestowed on them. Besides the ivory label attached to the ring that connected them, there were smaller labels of parchment tied to the handles of some of the keys to indicate the rooms to which they gave admission. The particular key which she had used had one of these labels hanging to it. She held the little strip of parchment close to the light, and read on it, in written letters faded by time, THE MYRTLE ROOM. The room in which the letter was hidden had a name, then, a prettily sounding name that would attract most people and keep pleasantly in their memories, a name to be distrusted by her, after what she had done, on that very account. She took her housewife from its usual place in the pocket of her apron, and, with the scissors which it contained, cut the label from the key. Was it enough to destroy that one only? She lost herself in a maze of useless conjecture, and ended by cutting off the other labels, from no other motive than instinctive suspicion of them. Carefully gathering up the strips of parchment from the floor, she put them, along with the little rusty key which she had brought out of the myrtle room, in the empty pocket of her apron. Then, carrying the large bunch of keys in her hand, and carefully locking the doors that she had opened on her way to the north side of the Portagena Tower, she retraced her steps to the housekeeper's room, entered it without seeing anybody, and hung up the bunch of keys again on the nail in the wall. Fearful, as the morning hours wore on, of meeting with some of the female servants, she next hastened back to her bedroom. The candle she had left there was still burning feebly in the fresh daylight. 
when she drew aside the window curtain, after extinguishing the candle, a shadow of her former fear passed over her face, even in the broad daylight that now flowed in upon it. She opened the window and leaned out eagerly into the cool air. Whether for good or for evil, the fatal secret was hidden now. The act was done. There was something calming in the first consciousness of that fact. She could think more composedly after that of herself and of the uncertain future that lay before her. Under no circumstances could she have expected to remain in her situation, now that the connection between herself and her mistress had been severed by death. She knew that Mrs. Treverton, in the last days of her illness, had earnestly recommended her maid to Captain Treverton's kindness and protection, and she felt assured that the wife's last entreaties, in this as in all other instances, would be viewed as the most sacred of obligations by the husband. But could she accept protection and kindness at the hand of the master whom she had been accessory to deceiving, and whom she had now committed herself to deceiving still? The bare idea of such baseness was so revolting that she accepted, almost with a sense of relief, the one sad alternative that remained, the alternative of leaving the house immediately. And how was she to leave it? By giving formal warning, and so exposing herself to questions which would be sure to confuse and terrify her? Could she venture to face her master again after what she had done, to face him when his first inquiries would refer to her mistress, when he would be certain to ask her for the last mournful details, for the slightest word that had been spoken during the death scene that she alone had witnessed. She started to her feet, as the certain consequences of submitting herself to that unendurable trial all crowded together warningly in her mind, took her cloak from its place on the wall, and listened at her door in sudden suspicion and fear. Had she heard footsteps? Was her master sending for her already? No, all was silent outside. A few tears rolled over her cheeks as she put on her bonnet, and felt that she was facing, by the performance of that simple action, the last, and perhaps the hardest to meet, of the cruelest necessities in which the hiding of the secret had involved her. There was no help for it. She must run the risk of betraying everything, or brave the double trial of leaving Portagania Tower and leaving it secretly. Secretly? As a thief must go? Without a, a word to her master? Without so much as one line of writing to thank him for his kindness and to ask his pardon? She had unlocked her desk, and had taken from it her purse, one or two letters, and a little book of Wesley's hymns, before these considerations occurred to her. They made her pause in the act of shutting up the desk. Shall I write, she asked herself, and leave the letter here to be found when I am gone? A little more reflection decided her in the affirmative. 
as rapidly as her pen could form the letters, she wrote a few lines addressed to Captain Treverton, in which she confessed to having kept a secret from his knowledge, which had been left in her charge to divulge, adding that she honestly believed no harm could come to him or to anyone in whom he was interested in by her failing to perform the duty entrusted to her and ended by asking his pardon for leaving the house secretly, and by begging, as a last favour, that no search might ever be made for her. Having sealed this short note, and left it on her table, with her master's name written outside, she listened again at the door, and, after satisfying herself that no one was yet stirring, began to descend the stairs at Portagena Tower for the last time. At the entrance of the passage leading to the nursery she stopped. The tears which she had restrained since leaving her room began to flow again. Urgent as her reasons now were for effecting her departure without a moment's loss of time, she advanced, with the strangest inconsistency, a few steps toward the nursery door. Before she had gone far, a slight noise in the lower part of the house caught her ear and instantly checked her further progress. While she stood doubtful, the grief at her heart, a greater grief than any she had yet betrayed, rose irresistibly to her lips and burst from them in one deep gasping sob. The sound of it seemed to terrify her into a sense of the danger of her position if she delayed a moment longer. She ran out again to the stairs, reached the kitchen floor in safety, and made her escape by the garden door which the servant had opened for her at the dawn of the morning. On getting clear of the premises at Portagena Tower, instead of taking the nearest path over the moor that led to the high road, she diverged to the church, but stopped before she came to it, at the public well of the neighborhood, which had been sunk near the cottages of the Portagena fishermen. Cautiously looking round her, she dropped into the well the little rusty key which she had brought out of the myrtle room, then hurried on and entered the churchyard. She directed her course straight to one of the graves, situated a little apart from the rest. On the headstone were inscribed these words, Sacred to the memory of Hugh Powell, aged twenty-six years. He met with his death through the fall of a rock in Portagena Mine, December 17, 1823. Gathering a few leaves of grass from the grave, Sarah opened the little book of Wesley's hymns which she had brought with her from the bedroom of Portagena's tower, and placed the leaves delicately and carefully between the pages. As she did this, the wind blew open the title page of the hymns, and displayed this inscription on it, written in large clumsy characters, Sarah Leeson, her book, the gift of Hugh Powell. Having secured the blades of grass between the pages of the book, she retraced her way toward the path leading to the high road. Arrived on the moor, she took out of her apron pocket the parchment labels that had been cut from the keys, 
and scattered them under the furze bushes. Gone, she said, as I am gone. God help and forgive me. It is all done and over now. With these words, she turned her back on the old house and the sea view below it, and followed the moorland path on her way to the high road. Four hours afterward, Captain Treverton desired one of the servants at Portagena Tower to inform Sarah Leeson that he wished to hear all she had to tell him of the dying moments of her mistress. The messenger returned with looks and words of amazement, and with the letter that Sarah had addressed to her master in his hand. The moment Captain Treverton had read the letter, he ordered an immediate search to be made after the missing woman. She was so easy to describe and to recognize, by the premature grayness of her hair, by the odd, scared look in her eyes, and by her habit of constantly talking to herself, that she was traced with certainty as far as Truro. In that large town the track of her was lost, and never recovered again. Rewards were offered. The magistrates of the district were interested in the case. All that wealth and power could do to discover her was done, and done in vain. No clue was found to suggest a suspicion of her whereabouts, or to help in the slightest degree toward explaining the nature of the secret at which she had hinted in her letter. Her master never saw her again, never heard of her again, after the morning of the 23rd of August, 1829. End of Book One, Chapter Three